Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, welcome back, Ben. We are doing section 88 today. Man, I thought, man, I thought section 84 was big, but section 88 is just as long, and it, this this section has a lot of moving parts. I mean, there are just so many places in this, and it, it moves, and you don't know really where it's going. And man, there's just so much here. I don't I don't know how, exactly how we're going to tackle. Which this. side do you bite from first? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like one of those really big burgers, and he's like, I don't know how I'm going to eat all of this, but just one bite at a time. So. So let's do it. But section 88, this was a, a revelation given in December of 1832 while Joseph was in Kirtland. And this this revelation was considered as an olive leaf, right? And, and it says in the section he- heading, an olive leaf plucked from the tree of paradise, the Lord's message of peace to us. And so when I read that, I'm like, man, Latter-day Peace Studies, this is this is our section, right? This is a section we really get to dive into some stuff. And and there's just some really interesting – every one of these ideas of Revelation has assumptions behind it. For, for a lot of these things to be true, it has to mean other things are true as well. And so there's a lot of things that – are said and the Lord says here that for these things to be true, it's like we take these back and and that's where we start getting into some really deep waters in in these assumptions that have to be true for these things to be true. And there's so many of those. I don't know how we're going to cover even a fraction of them, but uh, but we'll see where we can go with that. But section 88 starts off with a conversation of the comforter. And from the comforter, it evolves into this discussion about the light of Christ and about light. And from there, we come back in it's kind of reminiscent of section 76 where we're now talking again about the different degrees of glory. Mm-hmm. And the different degrees of glory, we talk about them in terms of laws. So in section 88, it's about the laws of each one of the glories. Then we get this really fascinating conversation about the nature of God. And it talks about a little bit of his omnipresence and his omniscience and this almost like this panentheism that, that pulls through in a way that we don't really feel comfortable in in kind of modern speak talking about this. And I want to get some of your ideas there about uh, about what you think about this, this concept of God being in and through all things. Because that that's a very interesting notion nowadays. And I've been in a lot of conversations, you know, kind of theological conversations with a lot of people about the about this kind of panentheism in the church. Is there room for this? And section 88, I think, gives a little bit of a, a a platform for us to be able to say there might be some room here. But then we have this really fascinating parable. And it's like, wow, what does this parable even mean? I thought you said it when we were talking and I thought the same thing, but as I thought I knew what was going on here until this parable. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what this parable is. <laughs> it's supposed to help you understand. And it's like, wait, 
Right. <laughs> like, what, what was this? Like, I, it, it's a beautiful parable. And I want to talk about a little bit about the universalism that this parable seems to be pointing towards. From that, it transitions into a beautiful discussion of modality. And we've talked a lot about modality recently. And the question that I've, ha- I've had myself is, well, how do you begin to build the modes of worship? And, and with this restoration of this church and this whole new experience that they're trying to incorporate and have, and the things they're trying to point towards, how do you create these new modes of experience? And for myself, if one mode isn't working for me, how can I put that mode to the side and pick another one up and then use that to pour my intentionality into to be able to creating a, a relationship, a stronger relationship, at least on my end with God, right? God already knows me perfectly from beginning to end. It's all about me coming to, into the relationship to know God. And so these conversations of building modes and of the Lord being able to show us how to do that and kind of what to focus on, I think is really important. From there, we have a conversation about angels and about there are seven angels that blow seven trumpets. So there's a lot of horn blowing in this uh, in this section with them blowing these trumpets and <laughs> and opening up different different discussions, right? And then they all start blowing their trumpets again, and it means something else. And that's going to be a beautiful discussion about how God reconciles and 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 redeems His people. Finally, it concludes a little bit with this discussion of modality. Again, it gets a little bit more into modality. Verses 123 through 126, I think, are really the apex of the entire discussion of 88, coming back to the section heading about peace. And then it concludes with a conversation about the school of the prophets and about how they're supposed to to construct their meetings and how they're able to, to greet each other and the salutations that they have and the kind of some rites and ordinances and rituals that they're supposed to perform in in coming together and creating a unified almost brotherhood there with the school of the prophets. So fascinating section. Uh, I look forward to the conversation we're going to have here. Uh, but to start off, the comforter. I always find it interesting to see what comes first. Why are we having a conversation of the comforter here first? Why this discussion first? Why don't we start with modality? Why don't we start with the trumpets first? Why don't why didn't we start with those things? Why the comforter? And I think it's foundational here where it says in verse three, wherefore I now send upon you another comforter, even upon my friends, that it may abide in your hearts, even the Holy Spirit of promise. Which other comforter is the same that I promised unto my disciples, as is recorded in the testimony of John? This comforter is the promise which I give unto you of eternal life, even the glory of the celestial kingdom, which glory is that of the church of the firstborn, even of God, the holiest of all, through Jesus Christ, his son. You know, this section has a lot of discussion about glory. And every time, every time I think about glory, I can't help but go back to Alma 9 and to, and to reread yet again, just this concept of God's glory. Because when it talks about God coming in his glory, we've talked about this almost ad nauseum, right? <laughs> we've talked about this a lot, about this. When we think about God coming in his glory, we get all the pictures of angels and trumpets and I mean, just exactly what section 84 is talking about. And God coming in clouds and everybody sees him and every knee bowing and every or every knee bending and every tongue confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And yet in Alma 9, 
it talks about how Jesus will come in his glory the first time. And it says that he's coming in his glory. And then it goes on to define what that is. And for any listeners who haven't been with us for, for the many podcasts before that we've talked about this, I'll just go ahead and reread it. In Alma 9.26, it reads, And not many days hence the Son of God shall come in his glory, and his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, equity, truth, patience, mercy, and long-suffering, quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. So in section 88, as you go through and you read section 88 for yourself, and as we're talking about it today, whenever we come across the word glory, this is what I have in mind. I have in mind that the glory of God is not necessarily this overpowering, bright light, you know, that, that, you know, we hear Joseph Smith talking about the, the brightness of God, and there is that component to it too. I don't, I'm not dismissing that but rather focusing on the actual nature of God. When God shows up, when God reveals himself, when Jesus Christ comes again in that glory, that light is an emanation of a nature, and that nature is the nature of grace and equity, truth, patience, mercy, long-suffering, and quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. You know, that concept of long-suffering through the atonement, Christ suffers with us. He suffers next to us. There is a suffering with. You know, we talk about the atonement a lot in terms of suffering for, that he suffered for our sins. But I find a lot of value in the idea of sitting with the idea of Christ suffering with me. That God is not hedging up my way. He's not putting barriers in front of me. He's not condemning me. He's not doing He's not causing bad things to happen, nor is he powerless to prevent them. But God comes up next to me in my moments of trauma and of pain, and he he experiences them with me. And I, I've talked about the story before about selling pest control because that's that was my life and in your life. That's how we met, Ben. You know, so many <laughs> yeah. years, so many years ago. But just the for anyone who's ever done door-to-door sales and who has ever had a job on commission to be able to work so hard out in the heat and the sun and beating it down and having so many people say no and having so many people yell at you and, and make you feel little and to come into the end of the day when so many other people have been successful with a lot of sales and you've not sold anything, which means you don't make any money, which means that your entire purpose of being out and away from your family and being, being there that day was seemingly worthless and pointless. And the only thing at that moment that really makes you feel good, for as weird as it sounds, is when you look across the room and there's at least one other person who is having the exact same experience who didn't sell anything that day. And it's in that moment, it's, and it's more than just like misery loves company. Because when we say that, we just want to say like miserable people just want to bring down other and make everybody miserable like to themselves. But it's not like that. It's, it's that there is a, a human need to be recognized. A human desire that they're not alone. A human, this human capacity for ourselves that in our trauma, what heals us in our trauma is to recognize that we are not alone and that we are seen because another person is experiencing the same thing with us. And so you look across the room and you see another person who had a big, a big zero on the day. And all you have to do is just look at them and they look at you and there's just a little head nod 
And then you like an acknowledgement and you're like, yeah, we both get it. And that alleviates like 90% of the problem right then and there. And then you go back home and the next day you start all over. And that's what I see with Christ is that Christ's suffering for our sins. I'm, per- I'm perfectly happy with that. But what has landed more and bid more substantial for me is this concept of Christ suffering with me. And so when we come into this discussion of the comforter and the comforter bringing about that glory and that glory being this concept of equity and grace and truth and long suffering, the Christ is suffering with us the whole way. I find a lot of value in that. I think that's very beautiful. You know, and, and you're talking about how Alma gets after that, that concept of glory, you know, just a couple chapters before this is the theme. One of the main themes that Alma talks about with Christ's suffering is he does it so that he can understand us, right? So that he can be with us and succor us and, and be there for us. And I think that's really a significant part of it. The, the not alone, the understood part. It's, it's not so much that we then take joy in another person's suffering like we do. It's that we have comfort in knowing that we're not alone and that, that someone else understands us. And so, you know, in addition to Alma's insight about glory, his insight in Alma chapter 7 about uh, Christ and his actual mission is quite profound. Just overall on this section, I think you kind of hinted at this, that it's possible that section 88 is is a, uh, quite a bit more mystical than maybe most Latter-day Saints would be comfortable with <laughs> on a regular basis. Um you know, there's a lot, a lot of these allusions to to light and the the you, you know something that's yeah, like you said, you said panentheism. I've always heard pantheism. Are they the same thing? Yeah, that's a really great question because no, they're not the same thing. So pantheism is this idea that it comes back to this idea from the philosopher Spinoza, yeah, where he argues that God is reality. Okay, so that everything everything that we touch is God. Okay. Right. So the universe is God and the table in front That's of us pantheism. is God. That's pantheism, right? So panentheism, panentheism is is going beyond that. It's this idea that God is above his creation, but that God's fingerprint and his light is in and through all things. So it's a metaphysical he's the metaphysical reality at another layer underlying all of actual perceived reality. Yeah. So, panentheism, it it holds that there's an ontological difference and a kind of distinction between the divine and the non-divine. And and there's a significance there to both. But that, yeah, the divine is what moves in and through and gives life and order and creation and existence to everything else. So, it's that because we are the creations of God – that we necessarily have the fingerprint or the light of God, light of Christ or the light of God in us or through us. And so it's, it's a different way of seeing it. So for me, when I look at Alman, he says that all thing I have all things that testify there as a God. Mm-hmm. For me, it really speaks to this. Uh, right. you know, I am reading a little bit into the text, but it's that there is a witness that everything has the light of Christ. And I think that's why section 88 is so powerful is because it really goes in, I mean, specifically, it says that the the light here is in and through all things. And and we're going to read a few places here that it's going to get further into that. Yeah. Okay. So, that, that makes sense. I'm, I'm glad we kind of went on, digressed on that a little bit because I hadn't heard a distinction between those and, and 
it is it is significant to to say that this is more in in that camp in terms of the panentheism. So getting into the concept of of the comforter, I think verse four is is really beautiful. Just in terms of, really speaks to my experience with the Holy Ghost, and it is this comforter is the promise which I give unto you of eternal life, even the glory of the celestial kingdom, because that really, I mean that I I think that's really one of the ways of describing what it's like to have that type of spiritual experience is that there's that promise, right? In that moment, you know, we talked to before about, uh, you know, covenants and you making a promise and God making a promise. And it's like, God's promise is always there. You know, his doesn't change. It's us. It's, it's we who are, are very, you know, dynamic. And sometimes we come into that and sometimes we come out of that, but you know, God is consistent and constant with that. And so, um, I really like how verse four puts this is that, you know, whenever we get those glimpses, we have that moment, we, we feel that promise. We feel that assurance of what the blessings that God has for us as his children. I really like that there, how, how that's basically a definition of, of that spiritual experience, that moment with God, right? Hey, this is, this is who you are right now. And, and you're just seeing that. Right? Your, your eyes are opened to that spiritual reality of your inheritance of that eternal life of who you truly are. Then this whole discussion about, about Christ and, and being there with us and, and comforting is really borne out in verse 6. He that ascended up on high as also he descended below all things in that he comprehended all things that he might be in and through all things the light of truth. And this goes back to Alma chapter 7 that I just referenced, you know, 11 through 13, that Christ's experience was such that he could comprehend all things, right? Understand and be with us so that there is nothing at all that we could ever experience in which we would be alone in it because Christ experienced it. And in one sense, we could say, you know, uh, Jeffrey R. Holland gave a talk a while back where he talked about. Christ's experience in the atonement as of him doing that alone, just completely alone, so that we wouldn't have to experience anything alone. There's a lot of depth to that, but I, I do pause and think about it a lot because I think so much in our lives, we do feel alone in our experience. And so I, I sometimes I, I ask myself the question, well, if if Christ did it so we didn't have to feel alone in all of those experiences, why is it that we do still? And I don't I don't know that I have a really good answer for that because I don't think the answer is necessarily like, you know, because we sin, right? <laughs> because we're not worthy of of feeling that. I, I think that's not the answer. I think that there's there is some degree of experience. Um, that we get from feeling like we're alone, but then when we come into a realization that we aren't, there is sort of this retroactive um, healing that happens because of that. And I don't, I don't know how to explain it any other way. Yeah, I like that a lot. 
I, I don't know if I have anything to add to that. <laughs> that, was, it, that. That really expressed a lot of the feelings I was having about that as well. I think transitioning here to the discussion in uh, 6 and 7, it begins to talk about this glory of God and of Jesus Christ. And we have this word ascension. So we have now the ascension above and, and the, the, the descension below that he comprehendeth all things that he might be all in all and through all things, the light of truth. And, and this gets into what you're talking about, that he can be there with us in all of these things. And that for me is really where my own experience of the atonement has brought me. You know, there, there's many atonement theories and the the church over time we've kind of gone back between two and three and four in the book of mormon there's kind of two different atonement theories that are you know really present and for me that i have this experience where i experience my life with christ that he's experiencing it with me but there are other atonement theories that talk about the atonement in different ways and and we're going to talk a little bit about those a little bit later on but this concept that he's in and through all things, that he might understand how to be in and through all things, which truth shineth, this is the light of Christ. So just that ability to be able to have this light, this this light of Christ, which shineth a, a light on all things, to be able to bring us to an awareness of all things, it seems to, it's almost as if they're talking about light in a metaphorical or an epistemological sense, right? It, it kind of talks about it in a metaphysical sense that it's in and through all things and everything, but then it transitions into this, this concept of awareness to be comprehended. And so now that we have this comprehension and then in verses 11, it says, and the light, which shineth, which giveth you light is in him who enlighteneth your eyes. You know, eyes being symbolic of that thing which sees and comprehends, which is the same light that quickeneth your understanding, which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space. The light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God who sitteth upon his throne who is in the bosom of eternity, who is in the midst of all things. Man, 13, I, I think we could probably have a two-hour discussion just on 13 right, alone. Right, right. <laughs> um, but trying to unpack this a little bit, so we're going to talk about the laws of the kingdom, and it gets into the, the laws of the kingdom. We're not going to read the whole thing. But when we start getting into the laws of the kingdom, it's going to say that there – like in, for instance, in uh, 22 and 23, that those who are not able to abide by the law of the celestial kingdom or the law of the terrestrial or of the telestial, that each one of these kingdoms has a law. Well, we learn in verse 13 what the law is, and the law is the light. The light which is in all things and giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed. So, so I was going through this, these things and, and like, what is it, what law? Because when we typically think of law, we typically think of a rule, yeah, a standard, like, like, like this is the standard and you have to adhere to the standard. And if you don't adhere to the standard, that becomes our, the thing that we raise to, right? And, and yeah, that's that, how it defines what it means to, you know, to break the standard and then what the you know, what the consequences of that standard are. Basically, it's a, it's an if then type of thing. Right. 
But I don't think that's what it's getting at here. Mm-hmm. Nope. Yeah. This is where it's talking about light and coming to an awareness of the light that already exists, which comes back to what we've talked about quite a bit before with this true self, false self paradigm, where the true self is that entity full of light made in the image of God that God pronounced good. And, the, and so that's the metaphysical reality. And, but the epistemic reality, that, that which we perceive is of the false self, and we live in the false self. And repentance, as the LDS Bible Dictionary says, is learning to see God, ourselves, and the world around us differently and in a new light. And so in that way, it's the law here then is really almost synonymous with a comprehension or of an understanding of reality. So based on our concepts of our coming to an understanding of reality, or rather, when we come into an awareness of our true self. And so the question is, how do you do that? And for me, anyway, you know, we talked about, uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but for me, it's the Beatitudes. That, that's the ascension story that lands for me, because that's the walk through the emptying of the false identity and, the, and of the path of that story. But you, Ben, you brought up, you know, maybe it's, uh, I think it was the Oath and Covenant of the Priest. I think we're doing it with Section 84. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's that identity or there's that ascension that can talk about the, the ascension of identity in that or in 76. And we talk about it in priesthood. So there are many modes that we can use to have this conversation, but to recognize that the law is the light and the light that we're talking about here is this coming into this comprehension as from verse six and he ascendeth on high and he also descended below all things and in that he comprehended all things he might be in and through all things the light of truth and the light of truth shineth and this is the light of christ so it's this coming into an awareness that's the law not necessarily a, a specific standard that we have to raise ourselves to and that we are we're always feeling and i and, and that's really the message of paul right in the new testament you're never going to hit that legal standard. Stop thinking you are. That was never the point to begin with. All of those standards were only there as a mode of trying to help us become aware that we're never even going to be able to rise and adhere to all those standards. But the way so it's the law, I have to find the book here that I have. Uh, I think it's Spurgeon. I think it's Charles, uh, Charles Spurgeon, where he talks about how the law of God leads us to the walls of the kingdom. But we will never be perfected by the law. The law, we will never be good to the law. We will always fail according to the law. When we look at law as a rule, we will never be able to keep all the rules. Yeah. But it's the emptying of the ego. It's the emptying of even the, the thought and of the ego that thinks we can even do that which then is the thing which brings us from the threshold of the kingdom into the kingdom itself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and so when we look at the law as a rule, that's going to damn us, because it only brings us to the kingdom, to the walls of the kingdom. But it's the emptying, it's the comprehension, it's the path of letting go of the identities of this life and of coming to an awareness of what we always have already have been, 
where we begin to repent, and from that repentance become aware of what God made that he pronounced good from the beginning. You know, I, I really like this phrase here that it, it says it, it proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space. Fill, right? Like, meaning there's not a spot where it doesn't exist. And I think that's just another analogy to say that you aren't really ever alone, right? Wherever you are, this experience of Christ, this light exists. And I actually like possibly uh, using another word for light, and that would be experience. And this actually goes along, you know, we're we're really referring to Alma a lot. (laughs) This really goes back to um, Alma 32, where he talks about faith as an experience and that as we gain this experience, we get light. And why, why is light good? Well, it's because it's discernible, you know? So, so like I, I see this light as this experience and what did Christ do? He came to have all those experiences so that he could comprehend all things in a true, more fundamental way than simply spiritual knowledge, right? As Alma 7 says. And so again, I want to say light could be termed experience. And I think uh, law in this context is um, unfortunately the same word as maybe Paul is referring, you know, uses in the New Testament or even when we talk about like law of Moses or whatever. But I don't think that that is what law means in this context. That's not a, it's not a good, it's not a good definition of law. And, and, and oddly enough, I think a good definition of law in this context is definition. <laughs> you know, that, that a law of a kingdom is simply the definition of, of that experience. That's the law that governs this kingdom. It's just a definition of what it is to have that experience, right? To, to have a celestial experience. The law that governs that is the definition of that and to have a terrestrial and so forth. And so I think definition might be a good synonym in this context for the word law. You know, the, so much in this section, but particularly this part, as I was reading through it, I, I was thinking a lot of this is going over my head. <laughs> there's so much here that I, I, you know, there's a lot of depth to this that, that I can't get. And so the thought occurred to me, it's like, okay, so either this is extremely profound or it's just total nonsense. <laughs> and because of some other parts in that, that I get these glimpses through, as I, as I'm reading through this, there's a lot of this that I'm like, I don't quite understand what that's talking about. And then I'll get to a verse where it's like, oh, that makes total sense. It's almost like these little holes get poked through and I see the light coming through that's like, oh, I get that. It, it leads me to say, no, there actually is serious depth here. I just am not really seeing a very large percentage of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was having a lot of the same experience myself when I was reading through this. I'm like, this is this is really deep. It gets really deep really fast, and this this is a very deep water conversation that this is this is asking us to have. In verse 36, all kingdoms have a law given. Verse 37, and there are many kingdoms, for there is no space in the which there is no kingdom, and there is no kingdom in the which there is no space either a greater or a lesser kingdom. And unto every kingdom is given a law, and unto every law there are certain bounds and also conditions. 
And so I, I think, yeah, I think here it's the aware is awareness of, of these things. And we, we come to an awareness through our experiences. It's these experiences that we have where we, we really begin to taste the salt of the gospel. You know, we've used that analogy before using the, the beatitude example there of being the salt of the earth. And if a salt hath lost its savor, you know, there's a thousand discussions and a thousand theories that we can have about salt, but Christ is asking us to taste the salt. It's the, it's the kind of experience with salt that you can't talk about. You just have to taste it to be able to even know what it is. And so we have these experiences in each one of these kingdoms, and each one of these kingdoms have, uh, you know, like what you said, their definitions. You know, this, is, this defines this realm of what this is. In verse 40, for intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence, wisdom receiveth wisdom, truth embraceth truth, virtue loveth virtue, light cleaveth unto light, mercy hath compassion on mercy and claimeth her own, justice, con- justice continueth its course, and it claimeth its own. Judgment goeth before the face of him who sitteth upon the throne in the government, and governeth and executeth all things." And then I find it interesting here in verse 41, because this is where we get into some uh, some early Christian I- ideas about God, about om- his omniscience and omnipresence. Mm-hmm. In verse 31, it says, he comprehendeth all things. So this is the omniscience of God. This is, this is there cannot anything be, be comprehended that, is not, that God does not comprehend. And all things are before him and all things are round about him. So this is really speaking to that idea about the omnipresence of God, that, that God is present everywhere. In fact, through that light of God that emanates from the throne of God, that light fills the immensity of space. But it goes beyond that. And this here where it comes into that panentheism that we were talking about. And it is above all things and in all things and through all things and is round about all things. That's really powerful there. I'm going to even read that again. And he, speaking about God, is above all things. And so that's really where where we're getting not just the pantheism, but the the panentheism, panentheism, (laughs) (laughs) where God is above all things, but he's also in and through all things as well and around them. And all things are by him and of him and God forever and ever. And again, verily I say unto you, he hath given a law unto all things by which they move in their times and their seasons. So he's also, as per this, he's also a type of governor where he sets, he's the authority that sets all things as they are. It's really interesting. This is a really interesting excerpt. Just, just a, I don't know how random it is, but the fact that we're having this conversation about the nature of God here. I find it very interesting. Years ago, when we were discussing this section in a seminary class that I was teaching, um, one of the things I did was I brought a bag in of just random kids' toys. And uh, it was a cloth bag. You couldn't see in it. And I asked each person to reach in and you know pick a toy and feel it. And then see if they could tell us what it was by feeling it. And then after they had some time feeling it, then to take it out of the bag and, and then, you know, look at it and, and see what it was. And so, we, we discussed this a little bit in this context that 
you know, often the way that we experience reality in in our condition is that is is a sequential thing. You know, we stick our hand in the bag of reality and we feel a foot, okay, we feel two feet, and then slowly we're gaining these details of experience until we kind of put them into a composite and and we then we say, oh, it's a giraffe based on what I experienced here. But then we pull it out and we look at it and we realize, oh, it, it kind of seemed like a giraffe, but it's this other thing. And then there's all these other details that you get out of it. And so I, I, I liken that to you know maybe how how God experiences reality versus how we often mostly experience reality. We experience it kind of in time, right? Sequentially, and we're slowly kind of putting all these details together. But you know we never really get the whole picture until we just pull it out and look at it. Whereas everything is present before God. The whole bag is open. He sees everything. He recognizes it immediately for what it is. And and this kind of helped me understand that that so much of of our experience, it's not that it's not in tune with reality. It's that it's very you know it, it, we're we're experiencing through time, and so it's very sequential and and limited in the way that we experience it. It's not wrong. It's just limited. Yeah, I like that. In fact, I think that's I think that's a good thing to kind of springboard into the parable that we're going to be talking about here because. It seems that God speaks to us in the, in these sequential terms. Yeah, God doesn't exist. I don't think God exists in that way. Right. <laughs> in fact, yeah. there, I don't remember where it is in here, um, but it it talks about that. You know that that time. It, it's all uh, one day to God, right? Right. So, so we have this this parable here that begins by talking about how there is how God is here, and he's he's calling twelve men into a field. He's like, go into the field and I will come to you in the first day. You know, he tells one man, I'll come to you in the first hour and I'll come to you in the second hour and to the third man, I'll come to you in the third hour and so on and so forth down to the 12th man and, and you'll fill of my glory and you'll fill of my presence and my joy. And he does and, and God fulfills his promise. So he goes to each one of them in that particular hour and he goes and he sequences through all of them, every man in his own order until his hour was finished, even according as the Lord had commanded him. And that the Lord might be glorified in him, and that his Lord, that they might be glorified. Therefore, unto this parable I will liken all these kingdoms and the inhabitants thereof, every kingdom in its hour, and in its time, and in its season, even according to the decree which God hath made. Now, Ben, I couldn't help but see a lot of universalism in this. Sure. Where... This is interesting because God, whenever we hear about, and we're going to actually get into a little bit about this with the angels blowing their horns, but there's a very real sequence that's going to be talking about, about these angels blowing their horns and about what happens in, in the good people and then the, the second tier good people and then the not so good people and then like a really, really bad people. And, and so there's like this sequence about who gets to be resurrected or who gets to deal with what first and who gets what. But eventually using this parable, Everyone in their hour gets to be there with the glory of God. Right. It's not that there is a difference of light even. It's that no matter who and what they are, they get in that moment the full glory of God, this this glory of God. And that everyone in his time and season was able to see God. So maybe there's more to this that I'm not getting, but just on its surface when I was reading through it, I'm like, huh. That's really interesting because it didn't give any details about to the differentiation of light, to the differentiation of the law, to the dif different differentiation of differentiation of anything else. It was 
I will come to you in the sixth hour. I will come to you in the seventh hour and I will come to you and so on and so forth. And he did. End of story. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah. So the more that I have thought about it and as we've gone through the discussion, I, I, I'm understanding, I think, how this fits in a lot better with, with the overall. And so I want to go back to, to verse 47 because he says, unto what shall I liken these kingdoms that you may understand? So 47 says, behold, all these kingdoms, all these are kingdoms and any man who hath seen any or the least of these hath seen God moving in his majesty and power. You know, this kind of an Alma thing, right? You know, that that if you've seen any of these things that I just mentioned, which is basically just experiencing life, then you have experienced God, but you maybe didn't realize it, he says. I say unto you, he hath seen him. Nevertheless, he who came unto his own was not comprehended. Okay? Christ was here and people didn't see him as God. So, you're experiencing God on a daily basis from minute to minute and you're not realizing it. The light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Nevertheless, the day shall come when you shall comprehend even God being quickened in and by him. Then you shall know that ye have seen me. We've already seen God. We experience him every day and in every minute. We just don't always realize it. We're not always aware of that. That I am and that I am the true light that is in you and that you are in me. Otherwise, you could not abound. So then he goes into this parable. And I like what you said there about just like everybody kind of having a different type of experience. And he uses the analogy of time, you know, and sequence to say that. I, that's not literal in my sense. I don't think that like, you know, everybody kind of gets their time. What he's saying is that we all experience things in in a sequential way of life and we're not seeing everything at once, but God does come to us in a way at, and and even if we don't recognize it in the moment, we will at some point recognize that. And I think this kind of goes back to what I was talking about before that that even in the moment that we might feel alone, we may, we will one day realize we weren't. And I believe that there is, because I, I have experienced this as well, there is some type of retroactive healing that happens there that makes it, makes it okay. You know, helps us understand that uh, we never were really alone. And so, can heal us in that way. One of the things that um, stood out to me uh, just again as I was reading through this parable is just the number 12. And it's kind of odd that he brings this up. You know, obviously, if he's likening it to servants working, you know, there's the, the 24-hour day, 12 days of work out in the field. And, and, and so, that makes sense. But actually, the number 12 is used – in, in other parables and analogies, and we, we even referenced this a, a few podcasts ago when there, we were talking about the the 12 tribes and then the 12,000, right? And the 144,000. Right. Because it's this number that is it, – it, 12 is inclusive number. It's a, it's a number of perfection and inclusion of universality, of salvation, of God's children. And that's what it was talking about before with the 144,000, you know, because it's that hyperbole number. 
And so 12 is this perfection, this completion. He's talking about everyone because of the number 12, right? This means everyone, 12 disciples, because they were supposed to go and talk to everyone in all the earth and reach everyone. And so 12 is kind of that number, right? It's that everyone number. And so I like that it's used in this parable because it really brings out that universality of it. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense too, because when we have everything before this saying that God is in and through all space, that the light is everywhere, you know, there's no dimmer switch to the universal light, right? <laughs> there's no there's no universal switch where you can be able, and, and that's one of the things I love about the ocean. I've been out to the ocean in, 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 <laughs> at night and it's so powerful because the waves always come morning, noon, night, evening, the waves are always coming over and over again. And that kind of constancy. And the same thing with, with the universality of light. Light is everywhere. And that this it's gone to a great extent to show us that God is in and through that God is in and through all things. There's there's no part where God is the the light of the stars or the light of the moon. Light is light. And it's everywhere. So it's not that these kingdoms that we talk about have a metaphysical dimmer switch where this kingdom, you know, it only has like this little bit of light and this kingdom has, I think we get that kind of metaphysical notion because when we're in the temple and often when we're like in the telestial room, it, it, we try to symbolize the light that way, that the space itself is mm-hmm. is a particular light. Then we go into the terrestrial room; it's a little bit brighter, and the celestial room is a lot brighter. We try to symbolize this concept, but that the idea of the different kingdoms of glory from celestial, terrestrial, from the sun, moon, and stars, the terrestrial, telestial, telestial, terrestrial, and celestial, are from our perception, not God's. Yeah, maybe we should give everybody like sunglasses when they go in the temple, like two pairs of sunglasses, right? And then you just take them off as you go through, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's- The light level is always the same. It's just what we perceive. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and so that's what I was getting. That's what I was coming to me when you were talking there is that the light is the same. It's a universal constant. But what we're talking about here is that God comes to each one of us in each one of these kingdoms. And I love that you brought up 12 there. The perfection of inclusion that God is is bringing the same experience to every single one of his children. And in doing so, the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. The light has always been there, whether or not we've perceived it or not. And the more that we perceive, which goes back to what I was saying originally with repentance, that repentance is coming out of that false self view to realize the metaphysical reality that we are beings of light and that we have always already been worthy. We are always already beings of light. We are always already that being that God pronounced was good. It's just the the coming around to the perception and the recognition of it. Because once we recognize that, we realize that that thing that we call sin or those things that we call evil are just the manifestations of the false self. And that as we, as we trim away and we trim away those perceptions through our experiences, we come into a, a new knowledge. And, and I have that uh, written down here that uh, in verse 64, whatsoever ye ask of the Father in the name, 
in, in, in my name it shall be given unto you, that it which is expedient for you. And if you ask anything that is not expedient for you, it shall turn to your condemnation. And I have written down in the margins of, of, my, of my scriptures here, true self, false self. That what we ask in the Father in his name, which is expedient, is, is the coming into the awareness of our true self. That the false self is always looking to re-engage back into the false self. But the true self is coming into that awareness is always willing to let go of those modes and of the, of the identities that we realize are not eternal. And we leave those to the side. So that, that repentance process. So God comes and visits everybody equally. The light is the light. And yet the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. And it's, it's a, like you said, the law that's there is a descriptor about kind of how we are or are not letting those perception or letting those realities in through our, our lenses of perception. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go back to verses 32 and 33, because this is basically, it says exactly what we've been talking about. And they who remain shall also be quickened. Nevertheless, because it it just was talking about those who experience celestial and then terrestrial and then telestial. And then they who remain shall not, shall also be quickened. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they are willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? See, this goes back to what I've talked about often with the word receive. You know, it's bestowed upon us, but we don't receive it. It's this, this active thing. We have to be willing that's a, a powerful word used to, that we use in the sacrament prayers, you know, willing to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. Like this isn't something that like we accomplish, <laughs> right? Like we, we, you know, our personal achievement doesn't arrive there, but we, because we're simply willing, then it is achieved through the grace of Christ. And so, you know, that is verse 32 and 33 basically talk about what we were just saying here. Yeah, I like that. You know, going in 67, this goes back to the con- the conversation of glory. And if your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you. And that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. So this goes back to the, the more we let the light, the more that we are aware of our true self. And what is that glory? You know, we find ourselves doing exactly what we see God doing. You know, this is the the very essence of the word makarios there with the with the the blessedness of the beatitudes. That blessed are that blessedness. We're doing what we see. What we would see God doing if God was there with us. He'd be full of grace and equity and truth and patience and mercy and long suffering and hearing the cries of the people around us and comforting them. That's what this glory is. If our eyes are single to that glory of, of being great, of being full of grace and equity and truth and patience, etc., that's what fills our soul with light. Therefore, sanctify yourselves that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time and in his own way and according to his own will. You know, there's the beatitude right there. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, this this sanctification of and of the mind. I love how it's the the sanctification here of the mind. It's it's still we're dealing with perception, 
Mm-hmm. We're still dealing with it with the perception of how things are. Reality is just reality. And now we're coming into an awareness of what that reality is. Yeah. You know, when we were talking before as or in the introduction, you, you talked about how we then start moving into some more prescribed modes, right? So this this metaphysical or epistemological discussion about light and our experience with God now starts moving into, okay, how do you, the question then becomes, okay, how, how is it that I do that? How is it that I move into that sanctification to that understanding, you know, because I'm still being held back so much by this, this false self and this natural man, you know, like, how is it that I become aware of those things? And so then it's like, well, okay, here, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you because you asked, it's what the section heading says, right? I'm going to give you because you asked some modes by which you you could move towards an understanding of this and an awareness. And so here's here's some ways to go about that. And so, you know, mixed in with some more discussion uh, about this, there's a lot of of mode definition here for these next uh, several dozen verses. Yeah, we're dealing here with a lot of different modes. You know, in 74, it talks about organization. Mm-hmm. Organization is a mode. You know, this whole thing that President Nelson is talking about with the gathering of Israel. And there's so many different ways of doing that. I, I know that the church has a very well-established narrative and mode about how we're doing that. But there, there's several sub-modes. Just whenever we come into unity with our fellow men, that's a type of gathering, right? But organizing, sanctifying. You know, these are kind of abstract concepts, but then we get into some concrete in 76. Pray fast. I give unto you a commandment. You know, commandments themselves are modes. Mm-hmm. These are things that we we see and that we adhere to and we follow and and we and we make a part of our daily lives that we wouldn't otherwise. And when we do, we incorporate the knowledge of God into the actions of our lives. So this is how, and then in 78, it starts talking about teaching. Teaching is a mode, right? I I love teaching. I love gospel teaching. And and I know you love gospel teaching and, you know, teaching seminary. That was my favorite, my favorite calling bar none. I love getting there and teaching and to see the youth having their own experiences with, with God and those aware, those moments of awareness. And so in verse 81, it gets into testifying. Testifying itself is a mode, but a lot of the times we feel shy is not the right word, but maybe hesitant. Uh, Maybe we don't feel we have enough to say before we share or testify. Here it says to warn the people. But it says in 82, therefore, those who do not testify are left without excuse and their sins are upon their own heads. And so I think this is a good time to introduce the idea that sin in this context, I've, I've discovered, is really just anything that will weaken our modalities of accessing God. So you know, by way of example, um, if, if we want to make the word of wisdom a strong mode in our life, then we're not going to be out drinking coffee. Right? We're not going to be smoking. We're not going to be. We're not going to be doing things that are prohibited by that mode. We're going to be proactive in trying to to build upon and advance beyond the mode in, into using these these very fundamental core principles and then going beyond that. And so, anything that would weaken the strength or the 
veracity of that mode in our lives is sin. And so that's why any, every religion has their own, their own modes of experience. They have their own ways of praying, their own ways. There's a lot of different religions. Judaism has its own dietary restrictions. You know, Islam has its own dietary restrictions. They have their own version of the word of wisdom in their, in their belief traditions. And those are modes in their traditions. And the way that they don't adhere to their mode is sin for them. But I think a lot of the times what happens is we end up making, I, I, I don't want to use the word arbitrary, but fictional. I don't know if fictional is neither. <laughs> we, end up making, we end up making modes for ourselves and then we end up kind of ontologicalizing these modes, making universalizing. them real. Yeah. yeah, universalizing, making them real. as Instead of just being something that we adhere to, I know I hear a lot of Latter-day Saints who want to say that drinking alcohol is universally sinful. Right. No, it's not. I just, no, it's not. It's sinful for us. If we are adhering to the word of wisdom as a mode in our life, it is sinful for us. Right. And that's why we talk about how people say, well, it, that's my standard. That's not your standard and you're not accountable to it. What we're talking about, these standards are is just another way of talking about this modality in right. that we are trying to strengthen our intentionality into these things by pouring our intentionality through our adherence to these, these rules and guidelines to produce an experience on the other side. And if we cheat or if we're not trying to be completely intentional with it, it weakens the strength of that mode in our lives. And just another word for the weakening the strength of the mode we call sin. But the thing is, is then we try to universalize a lot of these sins in all sorts of areas. Um, that anybody who's not adhering to this is sinful. And I, and I just don't think we can do that. So here the Lord is really trying to show his people how to access the light from within and become more and more aware of it through these different uh, means of, of modality. And I think it's pretty, that is pretty fascinating. When I was reading through this, I was like, Hey, that's, that's, that's pretty neat. He's, he's really showing them some very specific key things of some, some points of action that they can go do right now to, to really awaken that self. That's part of themselves to, uh, to what he's talking about and becoming aware of these new truths. Yeah, I think that perspective fits pretty well on this. You know, I, I remember having this discussion with with a, a person of another faith at uh, various times, and you know, they, they would bring up, "Oh, well, you know, you think that it's bad to drink alcohol or, or whatever." And I was like, "I don't, you know, when you drink alcohol, I don't, I don't think you're sinning." They're like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> it's like, no, that's <laughs> this is the way that I express my. This is part of how I I live and express my faith and my my relationship with God, but it, it's not, this isn't like an objective, you know, imposition on another person as to how they have to do that, right? There's not like, uh, these things aren't objectively offensive to God, right? They're, what they are is offensive to our mode of building our experience with God, but that's, that's, uh, subjective, right? It's not, uh, necessarily a universal type of, of standard. So, yeah. Yeah. So very well put. Now, moving on, we have an introduction again here into 
another tears analogy, but all of a sudden angels are now starting to blow some trumpets and we have, we have seven <laughs> angels blowing seven trumpets and each one means something different. And the first angel comes and it says here, the great church, the mother of abomination. You know, let me, let me back up a little bit. And the, another angel shall sound his trump saying that great church, the mother of abominations that made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication that persecuteth the saints of God that shed their blood she who sitteth upon the many waters and upon the islands of the sea, behold, she is the terrors of the earth. She is the bound in the in the bundles. Her bands are made strong, and no man can loose them. Therefore, she is ready to be burned, and he shall sound his trump both long and loud, and all nations shall hear it. Now, this goes back to our conversation last week about the wheat and the tares, and, and we'd made the mention that the wheat and tares are not people. You know, we we try to make wheat and tares, and by doing that, we immediately, we immediately posit that usually that we're the wheat and everybody else is the tear. Yeah, it's <laughs> always it, the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anybody who's ever. I'm like I self-identified. Like I'm totally a tear. Like everything. I don't yeah. produce anything. But right, nobody ever admits this stuff. So by by immediately positing this kind of way of interpreting the scriptures and seeing the other person, we immediately create disunity. And unless you agree with me, then you're wrong and we're not going to be unified. And so when we look at this, I think this is another good evidence here because it's talking about this, this church. And, and for me, this is really just the embodiment, the collective embodiment of the false self. That it's, it's all of the egos, all of the identities, all of the, the assumptions and, and axioms that mankind's civilization and society are built upon. That'd be what DNC 121 calls aspiring to the honors of men, right? Yeah. Ooh, that, ooh, there's a good connection. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So then we have this, this way of coming into the true self using DNC 121 language of the, the true self is persu- you know, uses persuasion and gentleness and meekness and love. Whereas the the false self and the the, this, the great church, the mother of abominations, will use coercion and violence as a means to accomplishing their ends. Right. Mm. So the when we go through different angels and they all have something different to say, and, and we can spend an hour on all this. <laughs> but for for the sake of time, everyone can read through these to see what each which, which each angel blows their horns, and then at the very end, in one hundred seven. And then shall the angels be crowned with the glory of might, and the saints shall be filled with his glory, and receive their inheritance, and be equal with him. And, and here's where I think it comes, and it's, I, I, I love this next part, because we've talked about this before. And in verse 108, And then shall the first angel again sound his trump in the ears of all living, and reveal the secret acts of men, and the mighty works of God in the first thousand years. You know, Ben, we've talked about this idea of, you know, the scripture talks about the sins shouted from the rooftops in Luke. And we typically interpret this scripture as, for a very Protestant point of view, that, you know, the wicked finally get theirs. It's an age-old question, and we, tr- and we try to answer it religiously, and come to find out we have invented many of our most cherished constructs in religion, um, concepts of heaven and hell and and all the subcategories in, in, in a heaven and hell construct, because we can't seem to answer the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? 
you know, why is it that these people can adhere to these codes of conduct, which are supposedly for good, good society, and yet you know, bad things keep happening to them? They never succeed. They never, they never do. But all the bad people who don't adhere to our moral codes of conduct, good things happen to them. And so in a lot of ways, a lot of narratives were created, men create a lot of narratives about an afterlife because we couldn't make sense of how no, the bad people seemingly didn't get theirs in this life. So we had a mm-hmm. positive, an eternal place where the bad finally got theirs and the good finally got theirs, right? Yeah. A place that was not controlled by, by, this, by the, the calculus of this world or of this reality, as it were. But what's, what's fascinating is that using this analogy that the bad finally get theirs, this shouting their sins from the rooftop, we usually interpret that in that context by the bad people finally getting theirs. When in reality, you know, as we've talked about before, that the very first step of healing from trauma, it's like psychology 101, is by vocalizing your trauma, confessing your trauma, bringing it out, putting language to it, putting words to it, and putting it out and getting it out into the open. You know, this is why we have confessions with the bishop. He's, he, you know, God has provided an ability for us if we, if we need it to be able to take that trauma and vocalize it to an authorized agent and have and to be able to talk about this you know from a from a trusted source as it were but in doing this we are vocalizing all of that anger and pent up frustration and when it comes out it alleviates the voice but sometimes we just we bury that down and this goes back to the Cain narrative about Cain not confessing his sin and burying it down and God was there to try to get him to confess it and then his curse was everything that followed from him burying that trauma and so we are a theology of doing things by proxy we have a whole temple we have a whole temple built on it <laughs> like yeah. everything in the temple is based on this concept of proxy work and how beautiful is it that we have a god who utilizes this principle of proxy that for those of his children who never vocalized their trauma that he will finally do it generation by generation thousand year by thousand years. And so it says here, and then shall the second angel sound his trump and reveal the secret acts of men and the thoughts and intents of their hearts and the mighty works of God in the second thousand years. You know, and I think typically we would look at the interpretation of this and see that there's the sinful acts of the devil and the mighty works of God. But Ben, when I read this, I see that Revealing their sins is the mighty work of God because that's what's reconciling those that would not confess their trauma to God. It's confession by proxy that as they, the, as the trauma is made manifest, there's nothing left to hide from. So I, 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 this is, I think this is my favorite part of the whole section that God would reconcile through proxy. You know, it's interesting that it's seven. You know, I like this numerology here. <laughs> the earth's created in seven days, right? So this is, this is seven is creation, right? It's, it's uh, completion and, and perfection and announcing something good. So when you go through and you do seven angels, right? You've completed something. You've 
you've you've now can pronounce it good because it's been completed. And so what happens at the end of this seven? Until the seventh angel shall sound his trump, and he shall stand forth upon the land and upon the sea, and swear in the name of him who sitteth upon the throne, that there shall be time no longer. Okay, this is the completion of it. And what is that? And Satan shall be bound. So that condemnatory, that accuser no longer can because all of that has been spoken. What's there to accuse of him anymore? Every single thing that awful thing that anybody's ever done has already been brought out in the open and God says, we're taking care of all of it. Satan has no more power to accuse. What's he going to say if God says it's taken care of, right? He's got no more power. He's got no more bullets. All his ammunition's taken away. I think that's that's amazing. Yeah. I just want to sit with that for a minute. You know, the natural condition of man, we, we live in that place of peace. You know, that becomes the millennium where there is no more shame, where there is nothing more to hide. It doesn't mean that we don't live lives where we are, are perfect all the time, but it's a living in a life where we recognize that we can vocalize our trauma and it's okay. We can vocalize the things that we've done and it's okay. Where we we don't try to condemn or to judge or to bring this. We live in a state of mercy. See, the beatitude path doesn't have anything that states justice, but it does invoke mercy. And I know there's a, I know universalism is, you know, it's, it's a straw man against universalism. That the Achilles heel of universalism is that if every man is saved then any no man is motivated to ever do what's right. He just does whatever he wants to do because at last he's going to be saved. But I, I think this is kind of a straw man against the idea because anyone who has truly experienced the love of God doesn't want to sin. And I, I have yet to find a single person who when they look back on the most traumatic aspects of their life, those, those times when they found themselves in quote-unquote sinful behaviors, and I've asked him, I'm like, in those moments, did you really feel loved by God? Did you, did you feel God's universal, unconditional love for you in those moments when you chose to do those things? And inevitably, the answer, as anecdotal as it is, because it's just my experience, is I've asked that question a lot in the last several, in the last year at least. And I've yet to find a single person who has ever said, oh yeah, I, I totally felt the love of God while I was doing that. <laughs> Those who experience the love of God, it's so transformational. You have, it's like the people of King Benjamin. It doesn't matter what the rules are. You have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. See, when we have a society that only adheres to the rules because of a fear of punishment, that's not true morality. You know, when we look at our, our own societies and our, you know, I, I live in the United States and, and any, every other government's the exact same way. But, you know, if you, if I were to ask 10 Americans, why do you not do, you know, why do you, you know, keep the speed limit within a certain parameter? They're not going to, they're not going to answer 
because it's the universal moral good and I love my neighbor, <laughs> they're going to say, I don't want to get pulled over. Right. I don't want to get a ticket. When we act according to not wanting to be punished, that's not the moral good. That's not doing the good thing for the good reason. That's not because we are inspired. And, and you know, you and I, Ben, were talking about earlier, there was uh, someone who posted on my Facebook feed a while back, and I know the analogy is a little broken, but uh, the best way of keeping cows contained, you can either feed them and keep them safe, and they'll generally stay in the same area, and, and you can keep them there. Or if they don't feel fed or contained, or, or or if they don't feel fed or safe, then you've got to build a really big containment around them and and corral them in. And so human behavior is that if we truly feel and inspired by the love of God, it doesn't matter what the rules are. Is it there really are only two laws: love God, love our neighbor like we love ourselves. That's it. Because when we truly love God, it's because, and it's that whole thing in, in the New Testament, we love because God loved us first. And when we love God, we, we do that because we experience God's love. And that's that relationship with the first great commandment. And then because we know we love ourselves now, we can love each other as we love ourselves. And that becomes the entire foundation of all good behavior. And until we get to that place, we're not living in good society. We're living in society that acts the way it does because of a fear of punishment. And that's not what Zion is. Zion is that place where the accuser, that thing which points the finger and shames and debases and makes guilty, is done away. And where the love of God is invoked as an inspiration, and that inspiration is what carries order and makes order and makes everything work. You know, I've, I've liked... Through, through some different discussions that I've had with people, these ideas have come from different places, some from my brother, some from talking with people online, some from listening to some different podcasts. But I've liked this idea of, of talking about Zion as having a culture of mercy, that, that Zion may not come about by people sinning less and less, but by people forgiving more and more. That... You know, you, you start talking about rules. It, it, it made me remember uh, what Maxwell says in uh, the Enoch letters when he's talking about Zion and, and, and the role of rules, right? And, and so, I looked up the quote for it. Uh, he says, rules are useful, but these must merely mark where the borders of conscience end. Rules have a way of pushing conscience back and yet farther back. A lively conscience can cut through to the justice of any situation. And might I add mercy as well, if we're talking about a culture of mercy in Zion, right? No, I think that's that's beautiful. Yeah, our, our laws, the thing that we consider order in society is all based on coercion and violence. You know, I've, I've talked about it before. You know, this is very, very much from like Max Weber in his, in his sociological adaptation of, of, uh, of power and violence and, and of uh, the statecraft. But government really is just the socialized institutional monopoly, the socially acceptable institutional monopoly of violence and coercion. That's really what holds our society together is the threat of violence and coercion. You know, if you're driving down the street and you're speeding and a policeman pulls you over, and 
the policeman says, you know, can I have your license and ID, please? You know, your, your ID and your, your registration, your insurance. And you say, no, thank you. Very polite, very earnest, very kind, very gentle. You say, no, thank you. That police officer is not, go- not going to simply say, <laughs> oh, I see your point. Have a wonderful day. You may go. Eventually, just by saying no, even if kindly, without any regret, any aggression on your side, there will eventually be coercion and violence against you because coercion and violence are the language of men's governments. And sadly, over his, over history, and it's shown that the government will co-opt religion and government will only allow religion so much as it can use religion to be able to justify the state's existence. Now, this is a this is a, an axiom that's borne out and shown over and over and over again in the history of nonviolence. Is that governments only allow religion to exist so long as they can use it to reinforce the the institution of the state? But how can man exist in a society where we don't live by the threat and fear of punishment of coercion and violence? Because we, we we've really attributed these qualities to God, and Ben, you and I have talked for. Weeks and weeks and weeks, especially when we talked about the Book of Mormon, about this this violent nature of God. And we know as we've gone through the Doctrine and Covenants, we've really talked about this wrathful nature of God, not as a metaphysical reality of God's wrath, but as an epist- as an epistemic failure of our own false self, right? Yeah. And so we we read into God's nature, and it's so easy to do because it seems to be the most like. It seems to be the razor there. The what's the what's the what's Occam's the razor? Thank you. <laughs> it seems to be <laughs> Occam's razor there. Just that the simplest answer is that God is as violent as the government. You know that God is there on your side. He's there to be able to protect us and to guide us and to be there with us and to and to support us and to love us and everything. But that He is violent and coercive and that He is going to punish us and and He's wrathful. And there are examples of this in the scriptures. And so we, and it's really hard for us to try to come to a different understanding of God, which is why repentance is so important to learn to see God differently than what we have ever been told and what man has ever imagined. This is why I've always kept on repeating Thomas Merton's quote about how the more that we try to define the nature of God, what we really end up telling everybody is more about ourselves than we actually do about God. That we, you know, that the doctrine of covenants opens up in section one by saying that that we make gods in our own image. We 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 consistently make God in our own image, and we do that by the assumptions that we make of man's governments, man's societies, man's cultures, man's ways of doing things, and the axioms and the unaddressed narratives of what under underpins and is the foundation of man's governments, namely coercion and violence. We don't see another way of living in this world except with using appropriate levels of coercion and violence. And then we project that conversation onto God. And we're not the only ones. It's been done from the beginning. That's why it's in scriptures. (laughs) Men have done this from the beginning. And yet there's a perennial truth. There's a universal truth that keeps on coming out through the scriptures of God's nature, of Jesus Christ's nature, of the Sermon on the Mount nature, the Beatitude nature, the things that we, 
we talk about here with the Doctrine and Covenants, and, and again, I talk about the wrath of God not being the metaphysical reality of God's nature, but as the epistemic failure of our own false self. And so when I see these things and I see this glory of God coming, which is grace and compassion and mercy and long-suffering and hearing the cries of his people, that's a completely different way of looking at God than what we are normally trained to. When we see God coming and burning the earth, we think of this as the wicked finally getting theirs and punishing and, cor- and killing and, and killing off the men and women and children. And in, like with the Book of Mormon and Third Nephi, just randomly and indiscriminately killing everyone because that's just. Because even nonviolent Latter-day nonviolent Mormon nonviolent people have a hard time interpreting Third Nephi's God killing off everyone, and at best we can conclude is that we just don't understand the calculus by which God does it. Because if God does it, it must be good. We just don't understand it, and that's the best that we've got. Hmm. But yet, we still come into these moments where we see that this glory of God has always been trying to show us that it's grace and equity and mercy and compassion and long-suffering. And see, those tools, those qualities, man in his false self cannot make sense of how society can operate and be just by using those constructs and those ideas, those principles. And yet that's exactly what the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are trying to explain. And, and to a sense, I think that's what jo- what God is trying to get this early early saints to understand here, because as soon as He comes from this discussion, He starts going right back into modality. And as all have not faith in, in section in verse one eighteen, and as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Ye seek out the best books, words of wisdom from learning and by study and also by faith. Then He goes back into talking about organizing and praying and fasting and having faith in order and a house of God, right? And so all of a sudden he's like, have these modalities. Try to find me in these things. It's like we have this this beautiful, loving, compassionate God who suffers with us, who's always been trying to reveal itself to us. And yet in the false self, we only ever see order that's created and perpetuated by violence and coercion. And yet we have a God that doesn't deal that way, but yet man has written the record as though God deals that way. So we've got to use these clues to try to figure out who and what God is in a different way. And it's hard to rationally do that. But when we actually try to taste the, the salt of the gospel, the experience that God brings us, teaches us in these small glimpses, in these small moments, the power of mercy, the power of unconditional love, the power of grace, that these things which seem weak to the world are the very means that God will conquer and reconcile his people in the very end. You know, uh, I think it, it comes down to a choice um, in many ways, and 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 some may say, well, 
you know, the, the choices based on an experience that we have with God, but, but we also choose how to perceive those experiences as well. So I think it could come down to a choice and, and it ironically is, is articulated by Joshua in the Old Testament. He says, choose ye this day whom you will serve, right? So it comes down to a choice. Which God do we want to worship? How is it that we want to view God and, and worship him and experience him? Do we want to experience him through these vengeful, violent ways? Is that is that what really – is that how we want our experience with God to be or is it something else? What matches our true experience versus just maybe what we've been told by others about what who God is? What do we, how do we really experience God and, and how are we going to choose, who are we going to choose to worship, right? Who to serve, so to speak. I think, you know, you, you talk about how so much about the way that we organize society and, and view how society has to be organized is, is through these, these methods of, of threat and coercion and violence that are, that are institutionalized by a government and and to a certain extent you know that's the perception of how it has to be but these are epistemic perceptions right like people don't have to live in that reality in fact the whole sermon on the mount posits a different reality that when someone sues us for our coat we give him our cloak also and when someone compels us at the law to walk with him a mile, we walk with him twain. And so the reality that we live in completely negates any of the the power, supposed power that 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 uh, violence has because we're living in a completely different reality, something that is is grasping constantly at a telestial existence if we aspire to what Christ has has presented to us a celestial way, then those those existences and perceptions of a telestial existence don't, don't hold any water for us in the same way. And I say that not as like a, you know, I wake up one day and, and I live in a celestial world thing. Like this is <laughs> this is like every single minute, you know, you're constantly choosing, as Joshua says, who you're going to serve, right? which perception you're going to have, which way you're going to look, um, how you're going to choose to view God in your relationship with him in every single moment. You know, what you said there, Ben, about the ways of perception reminds me of something that Ralph Waldo, em em Ralph Waldo Emerson had stated in, in his publication called War where he said, this vast apparatus of artillery, of fleets, stone battalions, and trenches and embankments, this incessant controlling of sentinels, this waving of national flags, this revival of, and this reveille and evening gun, this martial music and endless playing of marches and singing of military and naval songs seem to us to constitute, constitute an imposing actual, which will not yield in centuries to the feeble deprecatory voices of a handful of friends of peace. Thus always are we daunted by the appearances, not seeing that their whole value lies in the bottom of the state of mind. It was a thought that built this portentous war establishment, and it will be a thought that will also melt it away.
you know, we, we imagine for ourselves the world that we live into, and it's the ideas of the world that we live into then frame and shape the world that we're in. It will be the ideas and the experiences that will lead us out of it. You know, we take for the assumptions that things have to exist in a certain way and that they can't exist in another way. And yet the Sermon on the Mount teaches us, and it rather, it, it points us towards something that words can't necessarily put into context and really describe. And so for me, the, the last thing that I had to talk about here was in verse 123 when it says, see that you love one another. Cease to be covet. Cease to be covetous. Learn to impart to one another as the gospel requires. Cease to be idle. Cease to be unclean. Cease to find fault with one another. Cease to sleep longer than is needful. Retire to thy bed early that they may not be weary, and arise early that your bodies and your minds may be invigorated, and above all things. Clothe yourselves with the bonds of charity, as with a mantle, which is the bond of perfectness and peace. Pray always that you may not faint until I come. Behold and lo, I will come quickly and receive you unto myself. When we see the voice of God that calls for us to love one another, to no longer covet, to be proactive and to, and to stop finding the little faults in ourselves and in each other, and then to be proactive in our lives, and above all things, be charitable. Love. Act from that love. See, it's, it's that divine love that once we experience the pure love of God, we recognize, even if it's just a glimpse, we recognize the reality of a world that doesn't need violence and coercion to establish order any longer. There is a different way. And it's a way that I see God through the DNC is trying to reveal to the saints over and over again. Whether or not they pick up what the God is trying to lay down, I, I think history kind of kind of demonstrates that maybe uh maybe the saints were just like every other generation. We've we've never really truly established Zion other other than the concept the Enix Zion or of the people in the Americas that lasted for a couple generations. We don't really have another example of of humanity being willing to let go of old narratives with the acceptance that there might be something new. But I think something tells me is that if we're going to build ourselves into the millennial, the millennium, the millennium, 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 <laughs> then we're going to have to be able to do these things and, and to become and become aware of who and what we really are. So, yeah. Now, uh, verse 133, I really like just like how it, it gives this, <laughs> this thing you're supposed to say uh, to your brother. It's it's kind of this like like prayer, I guess, <laughs> almost um, way of greeting another person. I think there's a, there's a lot in there. I like that. Art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, <clears throat> in which covenant I receive you to fellowship, in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable. You know, we talked about covenants 
and several times and and we've mentioned it before even in, in this episode here where this covenant is this mode that that God gives us so that we can arrive at, at an understanding of of how it is that that he makes promises and and it's not like he makes promises that are different from other things he does it's just like every single thing he does is a promise because that's a definition of who he is and so it's not like you know god says something and and then you say oh well you said that he's like yeah but you know i didn't say it was a covenant and so therefore i don't have to do that right or i had my fingers crossed behind my back you know like but but we as humans do do that right we we say things that we don't mean we make promises that we can't keep or that we change our mind about right and so we're given this mode by god uh, wherewith we can kind of feel safer and more assured that that he is going to keep his promise. And so it, it's interesting here that we have these words here, I receive you to fellowship in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable to be your friend and brother through the grace of God in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God, blameless and thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. And I think it's just, it's kind of a way of trying to define how this relationship between individuals in this context, brothers, right? The school of the prophets should be as, as patterned by how our relationship with God should be. Right. So. Awesome. I think that's a great, I think that's a great way to, to conclude that. Do you have any other thoughts, Ben, before we, before we end? Nope. That's it for now. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening. And and for another week, I look forward to getting into, uh, I'll be, I will be out for the next two weeks. Christopher will be standing in for me. So we'll be able to listen to his, his thoughts over when we get into the word of wisdom. That'll be an exciting one for next week. So I'll look Mm -hmm. forward to hearing what you guys, uh, what you guys have to say. So yeah. Thank you everybody for listening. And until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. We'll see you next time.